This is Classical Ideas with Greg Soden. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. The history of Islam in the United States is much more interesting than many people can imagine. And I'm delighted today to bring you this conversation with Dr. Sylvia Chan Malik to discuss her new book, Being Muslim, A Cultural History of Women of Color in American Islam. The stories in this book are quite incredible, powerful, empowering, and a real delight to read. This is a topic I was new to studying, and this conversation with Sylvia Chan Malik was a real treat. So, Dr. Sylvia Chan Malik is Associate Professor in the Departments of American and Women's and Gender Studies at Rutgers University, New Brunswick. She talks, teaches, and writes about the intersections of race, gender, and religion, with a focus on the history and cultures of Islam and Muslims in the United States. Her research highlights the lives, voices, histories, and representations of Muslim women and reveals how critical legacies of black freedom, women's agency, and global liberation struggles have continually marked U.S. Muslim women's engagements with Islam. She is the author of Being Muslim, A Cultural History of Women of Color in American Islam from New York University Press in 2018. Her writings are also featured in the anthologies With Stones in Our Hands, Writings on Muslims, Racism, and Empire, The Rutledge Handbook of Islam in the West, and The Cambridge Companion to Religion of American Islam, and multiple academic journals. At Rutgers, she teaches courses on race and ethnicity in the United States, Islam in and America, social justice movements, feminist methodologies, multi-ethnic literature and culture in the U.S., and contemporary U.S. history. Our conversation today focuses deeply on the research of being Muslim, but we had a great time and left many possible topics untouched. I imagine that Dr. Chan Malik will be back on the show at some point. Thank you to New York University Press for making this episode possible. So without further delay, here is my conversation with Dr. Sylvia Chan Malik from Rutgers University. Dr. Sylvia Chan Malik, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, Can you start off by introducing yourself briefly to the audience? Sure. So my name, as you just said, is Sylvia Chan Malik. I am an associate professor of American Studies and Women's and Gender Studies at Rutgers University in New Brunswick. I teach courses on Islam in America, uh, race and ethnicity in the United States, um, social justice movements in the U.S. and beyond, uh, and femi- feminist theory and methodologies here at Rutgers. Um, and I love teaching, and I love talking about my work, so I'm really happy to be here today. Fantastic. What is the focus of your Ph.D., if I may ask? I received my Ph.D. from the University of California, Berkeley, in a department called Ethnic Studies. 
Um, and a lot of times I tell people that and they go ethics. Um, and <laughs> it's actually quite, it's not ethics though, you know, ethical engagement is involved in that field. Ethnic studies is the study of comparative race and ethnicity. Ethnic studies is a study of comparative race and ethnicity in the United States and beyond. Um, that department at UC Berkeley um, and also at San Francisco State University grew out of um, the third world uh, uh, civil rights struggles of the 1960s and 70s in which people started asking for history and, and political science and literature classes that actually reflected, um, you know, the communities that were attending those colleges and were in those areas. Um, and so ethnic studies, uh, you know, looks at alternative histories. Uh, alternative voices, and um, they have a vibrant and thriving undergraduate and graduate program there. Excellent. You know, what's really interesting is that I, the reason we're talking today is because of your brand new book, Being Muslim, A Cultural History of Women of Color in American Islam. And you, what you just said is interesting to me because you didn't do a PhD in religious studies. No, I did not. So that's you, an interesting uh, engagement for me. To yeah, allow. I'd love to. I'd love to know a little bit more about how you approach your work a little bit, maybe differently than a religious studies professor. Before we dive into the book, absolutely. I mean, that's a great question. I think about that uh, a lot myself because I didn't really set out to write. Uh, a religious studies book, I mean, in all honesty, because I didn't quite know what that was. You know, I, I hadn't been trained in religious studies fields. I had not, uh, you know, engaged in a lot of formal training around religion. And I definitely knew I was not a theologian or someone who worked with religious texts or interpreted religious texts. What I was interested in, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about it in a minute, was how do you tell a history of Islam and Muslims? in the United States. And as I said, my PhD was in ethnic studies. And so the way in which I approached that was to think about how do we find the voices and the lives of actual Muslims in the United States? And how do we kind of figure out how they live their lives as Muslims? And so my approach was more as a historian, um, as someone you know who engages with literature and media, um, and as an ethnographer, you know, someone doing interviews and trying to find oral histories and things and trying to see what people themselves said about their religious identities, which I think is quite different from a religious studies training where you are kind of looking at that relationship between text and lived experience. But a lot of times mostly focusing on focusing on text and the kind of historical uh, forms of interpretation that have come out of engaging religious texts. So I have a far more, I think, historically grounded um, approach to my subject matter. Um, so I think it's produced something slightly different than some, um, you know, what someone trained in religious studies might have done. And it's really interesting to hear, you know, the exchange. It's it's been really fun for me. I love it. So. I got this book from NYU Press, and it came out very, very recently, and the title, Being Muslim, A Cultural History of Women of Color in American Islam, and I want to start talking about the book backwards, sort of, and sure. I want to talk about the conclusion chapter of your book, which I found to be really compelling because it's so personal um, to your own life, and in that conclusion chapter, 
you talk about the lives in Islam of two converts, one of which is you and one of which is your friend Maya, who runs a farm in California. So I'm curious about your conversion experience. So to situate yourself within the stories the book tells um, of women of color in American Islam, can you tell me a little bit about your background to your spiritual life pre sure. uh, prior to 2004? Sure. And I and I love the fact that you're starting with the end because that conclusion of my of the book kind of thinking about the intersection of spirituality and engagement with land and environmental crisis. That's that's kind of where I am right now. That's very much where my heart, um, you know, and my work and my research is going towards. So it's a great place to start for excellent, me. Excellent, excellent. That's um, great. And so, so, so I, so I intentionally uh, did not reveal my own. Uh, engagement with Islam as a spiritual practice until the final chapter of the book because um, it was very intentional on my part because I did not want that to be I didn't want I didn't want myself in any way to be the focus of these amazing women's stories that I try to highlight and talk about throughout the book I reserved it for the epilogue because I at the same time that I didn't want to be a focal point of the book I also didn't think it was an insignificant uh, point to reveal about my subjectivity. I don't think there's any such thing as neutral scholarship or neutral research. I think we're all grounded in our own subjectivities, our own lives, our own family backgrounds, you know, all those things. So when I decided to include that information at the end, it was a kind of nod to saying that not only have I engaged these women, I've actually also you know, perhaps not had the same sensations and feelings and experiences that they have, uh, but I've had a glimpse, you know, sort of like, you know, what an anthropologist might call, you know, uh, a deep uh, <laughs> ethnography, <laughs> right? You know, my lived experiences have touched upon those of the women I think about and write about in the book. Um, in regards to my own spiritual background, it's interesting. I grew up in uh, an immigrant Chinese household in the Bay Area, very diverse, very, in many ways, I guess you would say left-leaning progressive community in California, uh, very large East Asian population. Um, I grew up with lots of Chinese Americans who were mostly culturally Buddhist, uh, but not really practicing that much. And from a very young age, I had a very strong attraction and just fascination um, uh, with religion. I was fascinated with my friends who were Catholic, who had, you know, um, first communions. I always wished I could do that. And I, you know, my parents were, you know, just not, not really into that. Mm. <laughs> They were, you know, they were like, oh, you go to school, we have Chinese New Year, we do these things. Um, but I could never um, kind of, you know, it, it just it, it always fascinated me, kind of the ritual and the circumstance, you know, of all, all of my friends who went to church and did these things. As I got older, um, I, I, you know, I, I kind of participated, you know, at one point 
Um, I almost uh, was baptized in the Christian church. I had, you know, many close friends who were Jewish in college and got very interested in that. Um, but for some reason, uh, and, and again, we can talk about it when we talk about how the research from the book came from, when I started doing research into Islam and Muslims in the United States, and this was in the direct aftermath of 9-11 when I started doing this work, for some reason, um, the, 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 the teachings and just the simplicity of Islam as a religion made sense to me. Uh, certain kind of things that I had been drawn to and attracted to in lots of other faiths. Um, but, you know, kind of you drift away, they told your interest, you move away from them. Something about the simplicity of Islam held me. And so I stuck with it as a scholar um, and kind of kept thinking and engaging the text. And I, I very much think about um, my life, my lived experience, um, and my research and everything sort of being a very serendipitous trajectory where everything converged and came together in certain ways. Um, and, and I should mention also in the course of doing my research, I met my you know, now husband, um, and we've been together, you know, for 17 years now. Yeah. <laughs> and he's, you know, from a Muslim family, from a Muslim background. And so it was, you know, I kind of had to, I had to respond to the ways in which my life was, you know, kind of teaching me how to be. So it, it all, it all comes together, I think, um, in my work and, you know, what I try to do with this book and, and what I hope it will do in the world. How would you say your life is uh, the most different post-conversion as opposed to your life pre-conversion? You know, I, I, I was thinking about that question, and, and I, it's difficult to answer because in a lot of ways, you know, I would say I have no idea. Mm. <laughs> because, you know, I feel like so much of who I am, the core of who I am is essentially the same. I care about the same types of things. I do the type of work I do. I'm drawn to religious faith and the divine and understanding, you know, all of these concepts because of my deep desire for justice and equality and, you know, uh, you know, an interest in what love really is. And, and that was what I was drawn to in Islam as well. You know, these concepts, um, but I guess if I were to say a, a, a difference is because, as I said, both my research and my own personal engagement with Islam took place after 9-11, it was this very deep awareness of the ways in which Islam and Muslims were so incredibly misrepresented and demonized and misunderstood in most cultural and political discourses, you know, mm -hmm. um, and then kind of understanding that what I'm learning about this religion and how I'm engaging it is so utterly different from how it's being perceived and talked about. Yeah. And, I you know, and, you know, um, as I was reading the book, I wrote misrepresented in the media or in the world, in the margins of the book so many times. 
Right, right, and absolutely. So, so, so I think one thing that's changed, and I guess you know, there's more things. You know, like I, I've changed my diet a little. I don't eat pork. You know, those are kind of you know very basic things. But um, and, you know, and I'm the, and I don't know if you have images of people you know accompanying your podcast but you know i'm a chinese american woman i'm born and raised in the united states i don't cover my hair i am not someone that you would recognize as a muslim Mm -hmm. (laughs) walking down the street and i'm you know for the most part don't have to deal with a lot of the negativity that my friends my relatives you know people i care about a lot have to deal with because of that um, I'm, I'm, you know, r- relatively privileged in that way. And so, uh, you know, beyond that, I would say that it's just something I carry in my body, like how I understand the ways in which um, you have to orient yourself towards the world in a certain way. And I think, I think that actually comes across in the book. That's what I'm trying to say, because I felt that myself, that you have to engage the world through a particular uh, understanding that what you are actually living and what you experience and what is an integral part of your identity is completely, you know, um, not what most people perceive you to be. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the there are so many amazing stories that you are telling in the book and so many profiles of women whose stories are very overlooked like a lot of these are brand new stories to me and i'm 35 years old um so the book's subtitle is interesting to me a cultural history of women of color in american islam mm-hmm. um so as a woman an academic and a convert to islam what were some of your guiding motivations for seeking to tell the stories of the four American Muslim ladies, the Nation of Islam Seekers in the Cold War, Betty Shabazz, Dakota Staten, the women in the 1979 Iran Revolution, post 9-11 America? Like, what was your guiding motivation for telling these stories? Mm, um, that's a great, another great question. Um, so the term women of color, a lot of people have asked me about that. You know, why did you choose that particular um, you know, wording to describe the women in your book. Uh, a lot of people have pointed out, you know, a, a, so much of your book is about African-American women and African-American Muslims. Um, and the first thing I usually say in response to that is that I wanted to write a history of Muslims and Islam in the United States, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so prior and Islam and Muslim women in the United States. And so prior to the 1970s or so, the vast majority of Muslims who were in the United States, and if you were to encounter a Muslim in the United States who would say they were Muslim and present themselves as Muslim and identify as such, they were very likely or most likely to be African-American. They were most likely to be someone who had come to Islam and engaged Islam through conversion right at that time and so um because of that historical record right and and the types of you know uh, people who very publicly uh, identified as muslim I, I tried to follow that because i at the same time that i'm interested in women's inner lives and their construction of their muslimness as i call it their muslim identity I'm, i was also interested in the ways Islam and Muslim women were being portrayed uh, at different moments in time. So they had to be public, uh, kind of uh, public uh, representations, right? So a a photograph, 
Like I start in the first chapter with a photograph of four Muslim women together, and then I move on to images of the women in the Nation of Islam, and then Betty Shabazz, who's the wife and the widow of Malcolm X, and a jazz singer named Dakota Staten, right? So I, I, I tried to look at women in which I could query their internal lives and personal lives, but also look at the ways in which they were being portrayed. Because the central contention of the book is that the ways in which women were expressing their identities as Muslims happened against political backdrops in which categories of race, gender, class, and citizenship um, were shifting and are, are always uh, contested right, in politics and culture. Excellent. Um, so I want you to kind of like try to think back to the very, very beginning of this process when you were thinking about these ideas before you'd ever written a word of the book or found a single piece of research in any archive. Mm -hmm. What question did you ask yourself that eventually bloomed into this piece of work that's sitting on my desk next to me? Hmm. I started graduate school, as I said, two weeks uh, before the events of 9-11. Um, and I went into graduate school with absolutely no idea uh, that I was going to write a book about Muslims, that I was going to do research on Islam in the United States. You know, I had no idea of what my life and my research or anything would become. And what I was interested in at the time you know, before I started writing the book, like you said, before a word had emerged at all, was I had been very involved with activism and community engagement around uh, African-American and Asian-American community interactions. And this was because um, growing up, you know, in the going to high school in the early 1990s and then the college in the 90s, I was very invested in uh, what was happening in the post-LA riots, mm -hmm. the post-LA uprising era, and thinking about how different communities of color, African-American, Latino, Asian-American, could try to find um, connection within the communities in which they lived. I was also working in the West Oakland public schools at the time, you know, and trying to think about ways in which different communities could come together and have conversations. And so my question at that time was, how do we bridge, you know, these 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 misunderstandings um, and these types of antagonisms between different communities that are living side by side, you know, black and Korean communities, um, you know, black and Latino communities, different communities. That was what I went into wanting to do. You know, trying to work in the community and do advocacy and think about those questions. So that really animated the book um, because what happened was after 9-11, you know, as someone who had always done activism and organizing and advocacy, um, myself and many of my peers jumped into high gear around sort of organizing um, consciousness raising and, and, and peace walks and things like that. Um, around the Muslim community in the Bay Area because they were immediately kind of subjected to all sorts of attacks at that time that were happening. People were, you know, people were scared, people were reacting. Um, 
and you know knowing about histories of Japanese internment and things like that was there's a, a sizable population of former Japanese internees at that time we were you know there were connections going on there where Jap former Japanese internees and their children and their grandchildren were reaching out to Muslims as well mm. you know talking about how they needed to kind of come together. So I was trying to facilitate those conversations or working with them, uh, working with those communities. I remember we did kind of peace marches around the lake in Oakland and all these types of things. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. No. and, And so as that kind of happened, what I came to see is that as a religious community, and this is where, you know, my lack of training in religious studies kind of, you know, really came came to the fore. I was like, oh, but this is a religious community. And so in this community, in the Muslim community, just in the San Francisco Bay Area, there were Yemeni shopkeepers, there were African Americans, there were, you know, South Asian doctors and lawyers. And, you know, there was all these different types of Muslims. And even they themselves hadn't had a lot of conversations amongst themselves about how to be Muslims together, right? Right. Um, and so that was when I said, oh, this training that I have or this you know, work that I've done around different racial and ethnic communities is actually useful in trying to engage the Muslim community. And so that was the lens I brought to that. Um, that, uh, that reminds me of, that, that really segues nicely to a question I was thinking about um, so your past interest in activism and uh, studying of race and ethnicity and justice comes out really clearly in the stories that you tell in the book, which I think is going to be a really um, mind-expanding and world-expanding view of Muslims in America. So on page 17, you write, quote, The notion that Islam itself holds the potential for women's liberation has been central to women's way of being Muslim in America, particularly for black American Muslim women and subsequently other women of color. So that to me is such a cool line. So <laughs> thank you. How, how is, um, and, th- and that sort of comes from uh, a scholar named Sherman Jackson. Um, so how is American Islam for women almost like a form of American, like, liberation theology. Like, would you call it that as well? In a way, yeah. I mean, it definitely has to do with the notion of liberation, you know, from from a moment in history that even precedes, you know, when that term emerges, like in the 1960s, right? So, so absolutely, I, I do think that Islam in the United States is always linked to histories of uh, struggle and the desire for liberation and in a particular register for women, black women. So, yes, I, I would agree with that. Um, and and there's there's a reason for that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so so the, the way I talk about it in the book or, you know, the way Islam appears in African-American communities in the early 20th century is in the midst of this moment of the emergence of black nationalism and pan-Africanism, right? Within, um, in many cases, a newly enfranchised black population. 
in the United States, right? And, and so a quick, quick, you know, I always like to, I always feel like I, 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 it's really important to include the fact that anywhere from one-fifth to one-third of enslaved Africans to the United States and the Americas more broadly were Muslim. Oh, wow, and, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's absolutely been um, kind of tracked, and there's more and more scholarship coming out on that, that the vast majority of you know, many, many of the enslaved peoples that were brought here came from uh, a region of West Africa, which is now Senegal and the Gambia, right? And these were and continue to be predominantly Muslim countries. So historians have estimated, like I said, that anywhere from one-fifth to one-third of the enslaved peoples brought here were Muslim. And for, in many cases, they um, continued to try to practice Islam, Right to do their daily prayers, to fast during Ramadan, to abstain from eating pork, or you know to have a certain type of diet when they were here. Um, but due to you know the violence and horrors of slavery, of forced conversion, these types of things, many were unable to do so, and of course unable to build houses of worship or have kind of institutional structures in which they could be Muslim. Right. So by the end of the 19th century or so, most of these formal practices of Islam had been, you know, for the most part, wiped out or, or you know, uh, uh, stifled, right, amongst the black population. Mm. And let's on in particular ways, though. I mean, you have descendants of formerly enslaved peoples, for example, at Saplo Island in Georgia. Uh, there's a whole population there that are the descendants of uh, an enslaved man named Balali, who was a well, you know, he's, his life is documented in the history books. Um, and he was someone who could read Quran, he could read Arabic, and he had, I believe, 17 children, and the, the, his descendants still live on that island. And many of them said, oh, we don't practice Islam per se, but in our family, we have never put um, pork fat in the food. We always use turkey grease or something instead. Or we always washed our hands a certain way before we ate dinner. Or, you know, we always pray in this direction. You know what I mean? So, yeah. so there are these cultural practices that still live on. Excellent. Right? And you know, what's, yeah. yeah, what's so cool about that, too, is say you come from that family and you start doing a little bit of research as you get older and you realize that, oh, this is why we're doing all of it. Exactly. And, then, and then you would be drawn back to the practices of more formal study and uh, practice of Islam as well. Right. Right. And so, so I mean, I, I say that all as a preface to talk about the ways in which Islam already existed in the U.S. as a type of presence, like even if it wasn't a formal religious practice, it lived on in these embodied ways, in these cultural expressions amongst, you know, a, a great number of people, formerly enslaved and then later enfranchised African Americans. So in the early 20th century, the way in which Islam emerges is that after the Great Migration North, right, in which after the passage of the 13th Amendment, um, so many formerly enslaved peoples from the South, you know, all over the start, start going North. Mm. Huge numbers. They go to places like Chicago. They go to Detroit. They go to New York, Philadelphia, Newark, New Jersey, right, all these places. And when they get there, you know, they're very working class. They're coming straight from the farm or the plantation, 
right? And what do people do when they get to a new place? They seek out communities. And for this population, what was central to finding community was religious, uh, religious connection. However, in a lot of those northern towns, there was... um, There were already established black churches. Many of them were very middle class and upper class. For example, in Chicago, there was an established black bourgeoisie, right? So if you can imagine kind of formerly um, enslaved peoples who came from the plantation having very different cultural, you know, uh, norms and things like that, many of them didn't feel accepted in a lot of these middle class churches and things like that. So they started trying to find alternative spaces, Um, to practice religion. So also in this moment, because you have this massive movement of formerly enslaved peoples to the north, right, you also have movements for black liberation that are arising. So someone like Marcus Garvey, who's preaching this political rhetoric of pan-Africanism, that, you know, African peoples worldwide must come together and rise up together and create their own institutions and structures, right? And in this discourse of pan-Africanism, there are different thinkers, Garvey himself, but also people like Edward Wilmot Blyden, a black philosopher and theorist and theologian at that time, saying that Christianity is part of the problem Hmm. of why African-Americans are being dehumanized you know, and disenfranchised. Christianity has been part of the problem. So black people, both in the U.S. and beyond, have to find alternative spiritualities, right? And so Islam arises in that moment as a clear alternative, right? That this is a better religion. This is actually, you know, kind of thinking about the fact that there are so many Muslims in Africa, right? People, these leaders are saying Islam is a much more suitable religion for black Americans. We can actually find strength. We can critique Christianity. It's liberating. My goodness. Okay. So, and out of all of those time periods and movements comes like communities and new buildings that arise and uh, newsletters and magazines. Can we talk a little bit about some of your research? Sure, sure, absolutely. My favorite thing about the book is, and I know this is going to sound unacademic of me, but it's these (laughs) amazing images that you have in the text because I feel like I could just look at these images and it's almost like this fantastic photo album surrounded by scholarship. Um, So... I want to know a little bit about some of these newsletters and newspapers and journals that you found, notably Muslim Sunrise, Messenger, Mm -hmm. and Jet. Tell me about these publications that were, I mean, were they popular? Like, what what were these about, and how did you go about working with them for the book? Right, so those three different publications are um, different types of publications that circulated in uh, kind of different spaces and for uh, vastly kind of varying uh, readerships. So the Muslim Sunrise was a publication of the Ahmadiyya movement in Islam, which was an early South Asia-based missionary movement that was one of the first um, Islamic groups to convert African Americans to Islam in very large numbers, right? So this is in the early uh, 1920s. Um, And so they 
were a very, uh, like I said, they were a missionary-based group. So they were very actively proselytizing, um, at first in all communities, right? But immediately it, their central missionary, Mufti Muhammad Sadiq, realized that Islam's message of egalitarian kind of racial brotherhood and sisterhood and that everyone was equal in the eyes of God, it was very appealing to black Americans. And he actually went, Mufti Muhammad Sadiq, actually went to um, Garveyite meetings, you know, meetings in which uh, political orators and things were espousing uh, black nationalism and pan-Africanism. And so Mufti Muhammad Sadiq, which, who was the first missionary of the Ahmadiyya movement in Islam, decided, you know, very early on that they, he need to ha- needed to have copious amounts of literature to share with um you know, potential converts, right? So immediately upon coming to the United States, he started this newsletter called The Muslim Sunrise. Um, And it was supposed to be a bi-monthly newsletter, I think one issue every two months, in which he sort of, you know, taught, put, put in some basic teachings about Islam. But there are also a lot of other, you know, and he would have news items about, Muslims around the world and things that were happening, but also these really interesting tracks about how, you know, Islam was the solution to the race problem in the United States and things like that. Um, And kind of talking about uh, what he saw as, um, uh, uh, you know, faults in Christianity, (laughs) right? So all these things were in this newsletter um, that he circulated. But there was also things like conversion roles. You know, everyone who converted had their name listed in the Muslim Sunrise. Um, And so that newsletter, I don't know actually what the publication count was, but it is available now largely because the organization, the Ahmadiyya Movement in Islam, which still um, exists and, you know, has a very strong presence in the United States, has archived all of the issues and they are available online um, back to the very first um, issue that came out, I believe, in 1922. Amazing. So, yeah, so you can look online and find them yourself and look at a lot of the original um, issues yourself nice. for that one. So, um, so, you know, uh, part of being an academic is the thrill of research and finding something that has been underexamined or overlooked in history. What were some of the happiest discoveries that you made while you were researching? Like, what got you jumping for joy, like, out of your chair um, because you found something that was really fantastic and incredible for this book? I absolutely loved doing the research for my first chapter um, in which I look at this photograph that was in the Muslim sunrise of these four African-American women. Um, And they're just, you know, they just have their, um, their names. They have names like Florence Watts or, you know, names that are not incredibly, you know, uh, you know, I guess, I, I, I mean, they are special. Everybody's name is special. But, they, <laughs> you know, they're, they're fairly, you know, like if you Google Florence Watts or something like that, you're not going to find a lot, right? Yeah. Um, 
the working class women. There are these four women um, that I find. And this picture has kind of circulated, not a lot, but somewhat amongst scholars of American Islam or, you know, scholars of U.S. history at that time as just sort of an example of Muslims existing. Um, and so as I kind of dug deeper, I realized that I was able to track one of those women, Florence Watts, Sister Zainab, um, she's called in that in that. Um, photo, she, after she converts, she takes the name Zainab. I was actually able to track her going through census records uh, and finding work records and actually finding her address. Incredible. Finding where she worked. So I was able to find, she was the only one of those four women that I was able to find. And so kind of from doing that, I actually figured out like, oh, she lived two blocks from where that first mosque was on the south side of Chicago. I actually went there to that neighborhood and kind of saw how close that address was to where the mosque was. And I was able from that to piece together her life, which was so exciting because, you know, to try to find the life or try to find the story of a working class African-American woman who converts to Islam in 1922 is is not easy. <laughs> it's astonishing. So when, yeah, so when I was able to actually track her and then kind of pull all the pieces together, I had a big map on my wall where I had like, oh, she walked from here to here and this is where the store was and this is where this was. I was ecstatic. Like it was really it was really fun to do that and just really thrilling to see the ways in which this was a real person and she really lived and these were the places she walked. Did um, you uh, did you find the mosque or the building where that photograph was taken by any the chance? Mosque is still there. Okay. The mosque is still there, Al Sadiq Mosque, um, on the south side of uh, or in the Bronzeville district of Chicago. It's been completely rebuilt, right? I mean, because it's it's a very old building, but it's still there on that corner right there on Wabash Avenue in Chicago. And I found that you wrote an article, a short article from a uh, a website called what is it, Sapello? Sapello. It's after it's named after that island in Georgia that I mentioned. Oh, where okay. Balali Muhammad lived and his descendants still live. And you, you have an article with this picture on that website um, so that people can find it as well because it's so worth looking at. I mean, it's mesmerizing. I could just look at it for, for a long time. Yeah, and that's people actually say that about that picture. And it's really interesting just because you look, you start to think, like, what are they wearing? Exactly. <laughs> They're wearing their church clothes and hats, but then they have these sh sheets draped over them. And it's just, it's very fascinating to think, you know, why did they do that? How did they come to think Muslim women look like that? You know, what was their intention? And so those were the types of questions um, I started off asking when I saw the picture myself. Another story that really drew me in was the incredible story of the Iranian revolution and women in Iran. And that, that story seems kind of overlooked these days. Um, why does the rise of the Ayatollah Khomeini matter in the story of the veil in Islam, which is such a, you know, an, a topic that is so heavily discussed today? I think that that moment in March 1979, or just the engagements with the U.S. Um, and Iran in 1979, um, are so critical to understanding where we are right now and how we talk about Islam and Muslims. And so while most Americans, I mean, the, the time 
passes so quickly. So every every year I have more and more students in my class that have never heard of these things, and that's okay. But um, the 1979 hostage crisis is something that most people are familiar with, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, hostage crisis, there was a movie, I guess, about it. Ben Affleck made that movie Argo about it a few years ago. So most people know about that. But nine months prior to that, there was a women's revolution in Iran. And what happened was the Ayatollah Khomeini, who had come to power in Iran, largely with the support of young, you know, in large part, liberal and secular Iranians, right? He had come to power with their support because they were rebelling against um, the regime of the Shah, Shah Reza Pahlavi, who had been, for the most part, installed by the U.S. government um, in the 1950s as a proxy kind of, or as a presence um, to advance certain types of values in oil politics in the region, right? So, so again, that's another sort of you know thing that people might go, whoa, really? The Ayatollah was actually brought into power by young liberal and you know in a large part secular Iranians. Right, who wanted an end to this regime of this monarch, right, or this, you know, what they saw as this, you know, U.S. installed ruler, right, who had imposed secularism on Iran. So what happened was after the Ayatollah came to power with the support of all these young, liberal, educated Iranians, one of the things he did after he came to power was issue an edict that... Iranian women who were working in government jobs had to wear the full head covering um, and robe called the shador, the black, you know, kind of what what we sort of see as this symbol of um, fundamentalist Islam, this Mm -hmm. black robe. Um, And he instituted this policy. And from there, what happened was you can imagine these young, in large part, educated um, Western-influenced Iranian women who had supported the Ayatollah felt incredibly betrayed, right? Because they said, oh, we supported you, and now you are, you know, telling us how to dress. Like, you didn't say you were going to do that. So out of that came these week of uh, protests and revolts that women um, embarked upon in Iran in March. And this is a moment in which, at the height of the feminist movement in the United States, the U.S. press covers the heck out of this week in Iran, right? Every day, if you look at the newspapers at that time, they're talking about, oh, the women are revolting in the streets against this tyrannical cleric, the Ayatollah, you know, kind of with no context or background of the fact that they were the actually the ones who brought him power, but now they were just angry at the way he had turned their backs on them or betrayed them. Um, but within, so, so why, why I argue that it's important is that in this moment in which the United States is finally in a certain way, you know, in the mainstream and a cultural way, embracing feminism as something that, quote unquote, we as Americans support, right? It's, it's using that idea that we Americans are this feminist nation, right, to um, talk about how backwards Iran is and these Muslims are because they're making their women wear this veil. And so you see that in the media coverage every day. And this is the first moment you see in the United States in which the veil and 
the seeming misogyny of Islam and its connection to fundamentalist Islam really becomes this full-blown idea in the American press. Hmm. And, of course, we see that to this day. Yeah. Right? So it, it seems like uh, it seems like second wave American white feminists uh, used Middle Eastern women as a prop to express distaste for a government. Right. Absolutely. I mean, and, and you see like so in that chapter, I look at these very specific ways like Kate Millett, who's a very prominent American feminist at that time, actually goes to Tehran and says she's protesting in solidarity with the women there. And she calls the Ayatollah Khomeini a sexist pig. <laughs> right? She's taking this language that U.S. feminists, you know, white second wave feminists are using to talk about, you know, sexism in the United States and just wholesale applying it <laughs> hmm. you know, to an entirely different context overseas. And of course, I mean, we as people do that. We understand things through our own lens, um, you know, and so these kind of feminist tropes that women need to, you know, for women to be free, it means they have to work, they have to have equal pay, they have to have this, you know, these Western-based kind of notions of what freedom and feminism is, they get transferred to in this case, Iran. And then later you see how they get kind of transferred to how we think about why Muslim women are oppressed, you know, across all the incredibly varied contexts and places that Muslims live all over the world. Yeah. So, you know, you tell all these amazing stories in the book and it's such a wide array of experience. And that's why the stories in the book are so fascinating. And then Framing it all in the U.S. context, you tie in the novelist Toni Morrison. And as an English teacher, I can't overlook this. <laughs> and you tie in her notion of safe harbor from the novel Sula. So what is this concept and why did you tie it into this book about Islam in America with women of color? And why did you like it? Because it's so gracefully done. Oh, thank you so much. I mean, first of all, Tony, I mean, you, you said you're a teacher and you teach. Tony Morrison's just, you know, one of the greatest writers, if not the greatest writers. It's possible, uh, yeah. In, in American letters, right? And so I, I kind of look to Tony Morrison for so much. I mean, her novels teach us so much, not just about beautiful writing and the stories and the people, but about history. I mean, it's theory, it's theoretical, it provokes us, it's spiritual, it's religious, there's so much in her writing. Um, but the, that concept of the safe harbor um, really struck me as something that was so generative and useful for me for thinking about women's religious spaces, right? And not just Muslim women, but in particular Muslim women and in particular African-American Muslim women because of, like I said, the external factors that they always have to uh, contend with in order to be Muslim. So in the novel Sula, there's this scene in which Sula and her friend Nell, they're two little you know, African-American girls and they've had you know, really difficult lives and histories of abuse and different, you know, dangers and violences always in their lives. And there's a moment in which they're just digging in the dirt together and they both have sticks and they're just poking in the dirt. And Morrison describes how um, there's a moment in which they just have to, they just stop speaking. They don't even have to talk. They don't have to communicate. They just kind of understand 
the ways in which their sticks are going and that they're digging, that they are together and they completely understand each other and there's no need for them to have to explain who they are to each other. And this is their safe harbor. Mm -hmm. This is this space in which they could completely be themselves, right? And so that for me was a really evocative image to think about the ways in which women and in particular working class black women right in the early 20th century and then you know I, I take the concept onward would find connection in engaging with a religion that was on the one hand telling them look you are all equal in the eyes of god women are to be respected in this religion right and, and giving them this honor that they feel, felt they had been stripped of because of the horrors of racism, sexual violence, you know, working in really difficult environments all the time. But then having this space in which they were actually trying to construct a new spiritual world together where it hadn't been done. And that really, since there were no such thing as kind of established Muslim communities or, you know, places in which people actually knew who they were, they could only find that comfort and solace in each other's company because they were the only ones who actually understood, right, who the, what the other person might be thinking or feeling. And I saw this in my research as well, you know, kind of engaging with older Muslim women who are now in their 70s and 80s and even 90s, right, talking about the ways in which nobody really understood what they were trying to do except their other sisters in Islam. And so that concept of the safe harbor, I think, persists. This, you know, you see it online with Muslim women, you know, creating Facebook groups or there's um, a mosque now in Los Angeles, the women's mosque in which it's a women, women's only mosque or, you know, just creating these spaces in which women, Muslim women of different racial and ethnic backgrounds, generations, etc., can just be themselves. Mm hmm. You know, and I get that sense of safe harbor as well, tying back very to the very beginning of this conversation when we talked about you and Maya at the farm, Soul Flower Farm. Mm-hmm. I kind of feel like that almost might be a safe harbor for her and for you whenever you're able to visit. And, you know, it's just kind of joyful because so many of the topics that we have talked about have been really amazing and also could be seen by many people in the world as like really negative and there's so much like uh, to unpack in the news and in the media with regards to Islam in America. But there's so much positive as well. Um, and can you talk a little bit more about or a little bit about how Muslims in the U.S. are engaging in amazing things like you talk a lot about environmentalism, urban farming, food movements and then more things that extend these amazing legacies of the women that you profile in the book, as well as this notion of safe harbor. Mm-hmm. Well, I would love to just start with this, this, you know, really, like I said, I'm so glad you opened that, opened our conversation with that, you know, with the last chapter, with the epilogue of my book, because that's where I'm thinking now, like what I'm interested in And, you know, as someone who has always been drawn to religious and spiritual sensibilities, you know, what I'm really interested in is the way in which these types of frameworks, um, Islam or Sufism or whatever, you know, your spiritual orientation is, is able to build communities in which you can 
be safe, you know, find a safe harbor, but then you don't stay in that space. You use that human connection that you find in that space to expand. And that's what I feel like a place like Soulflower Farm, uh, Maya Blow's farm in the Bay Area is. Like she came to this as a person of faith and, and started this farm. And there are you know, numerous other Muslim women and Muslims in general and people of faith who are starting these types of spaces, farming cooperatives, urban gardens, things like that, because there is something so inherently spiritual about connecting with the earth and then doing things like growing food and creating, you know, spaces in which people can come and gather and watch things grow, right? And so I feel as if Muslims and, you know, like, again, like I said, other faith-based communities are really engaged in doing this. My sense on the ground doing research for my next project is that it is it is on everybody's mind, you know, within the Muslim community. And I think, you know, beyond that there needs to be a way in which we are healing the earth and doing so through the social justice paradigms that have you know, impelled people to come together in this country. You know, the the civil rights movement, the black power movement, all these types of racial justice struggles, all of these are merging together um, right now. And so I see that happening a lot. I see young people really engaged in it. I see people thinking about it, trying to figure out, you know, how to challenge these um, you know, systems that they feel are making life more and more difficult uh, for for future generations every day. Um, and so, and then your other question was um, about about what other things people are doing. <laughs> well, that's fine, you know, because I feel like you're going to tell those stories, aren't you? I'm hoping to. I mean, right now where I'm at is. You know, I feel as if it was it, it it was and it is really important. There's so much more history to tell about Islam. I mean, I feel like I just told a few. I mean, every day I find more stories that I say, oh, gosh, someone needs to tell this story, you know. But I'm also interested in the ways in which that impulse of Islam in the United States, like I said, you know, early Muslims, African-American Muslims, and I think now a new generation of Muslims is kind of learning, like, this thing called Islam in the United States is not what, you know, everyone's telling us it is. And if we actually go back and do our homework and we look at the ways in which people have engaged and mobilized and found community and safety around these types of community and religious spaces, we can grow something and reach out and create something really beautiful. And so, um, I'm really interested in that right now. And I'm really interested in how Islam and Muslims are finding new points of coalition with other groups um, and doing things like, you know, responding to climate crisis and engaging with Black Lives Matter and engaging with, you know, the Me Too movement, you know, because that's where the new generation is. This is a generation that's never known anything besides a post 9-11 world. And what my students tell me is that they're tired of it. They want to make something brand new in which, you know, they they get to say who they are. They're tired of other people telling them, you know, who they are and aren't. They want to define that themselves. Well, Dr. Sylvia Chan Malik, this has been wonderful. 
I appreciate your time so much. And I look forward to uh, some future conversations with you and following your work in the future. That would be great. Thank you so much. It was, it was lovely. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Strybing. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas at outlook.com. Or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classical ideas podcast. Thanks so much for listening.